in many ways, I think we've domesticated Jesus and we've, we've made him into this little baby in a Bethlehem manger who's non-threatening. And, and, you know, we've, we've reduced him to, to such a uh, just tiny stature uh, that we can, you know, virtually ignore. And, and we celebrate a Christmas of our own making mm. rather than uh, pausing to listen to the biblical story and to, to understand this is Luke is at pains to show that uh, Jesus coming was very countercultural, as you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, it defied contemporary expectations. Jesus did not turn out to be the Messiah people expected. His birth was not uh, what you would expect of a king. We remember the people who made time for us. And today's episode is a good example of that. Welcome back to the All Things All People podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Jenkins, and we have a great Christian thinker to finish out our year. No, it's not the last episode, but it is our last guest. Next week is gonna be a year in review episode with uh, me and the crew, where we're gonna walk back through 2020 and talk about some of the the events of this year, of which we all know that there are many. Uh, but we're also going to be handing out awards to our guests from this past year. And what a good six months it has been. The show started in June, and it seems like it's been so much longer. Thank you so much for being along for the ride. But we're not done. We're not done with 2020. And today, we have on the show Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. And the reason why I say we remember the people who make time for us is Dr. Kostenberger means a lot to me because even though I've never studied under him, uh, his work in the Gospel of John was one of the first pieces of biblical, biblical scholarship that really jumped out at me. I was taking a class on the Gospel of John in undergrad and using one of his textbooks. He is a world-renowned scholar on the on the Gospel of John. In fact, if you own an ESV study Bible and open up to the Gospel of John, he's the person who wrote the notes in your ESV study Bible. And he's done a bunch of work uh, elsewhere. And I remember picking up this textbook on the Gospel of John, and it was like I could read through it like a book, man. It was so interesting, and it taught me so much. And I remember thinking... Uh, you know, at the time, Dr. Kostenberger was teaching at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I remember deciding I'm going to write him an email. And I, I, I sent him an email and just said, you know, hey, I really enjoyed this book. Uh, I think I probably had a question for him about uh, the Gospel of John and just said, hey, thank you. Thank, you know, thank you for what you did. And, and, you know, I guess I never thought he'd email me back, but he emailed me back. It uh, was extremely warm and generous and was was encouraged by my thanks and then of course answered my question and I remember being so excited over that that here was a guy who easily could have brushed me off and said some kid you know at a different school who you know he's not paying tuition and he's not paying my salary I don't I don't need to pay attention to him but he sat down and he, and he wrote me an email and, and it was so so nice of him and all these years later when I started thinking about uh, people who I wanted to represent academia and we've had some really good ones on the show and we're having some more good ones in 2021 I thought well I better send Dr. Kostenberger another email and just as quickly and just as as generously he shot right back and said yeah let's do it and in fact 
he recommended that we talk about what we talked about today, which was perfect. And it was based off of his book, The Early Days of Jesus. And Dr. Kostenberger, Dr. Kostenberger and I talk about the actual early days of Jesus and what Christmas might have actually looked like. And so I hope that the beginning of this week, where whatever, whenever you're, you're listening to this episode is finding you well. And if you are listening to it in and around Christmas, whether that be 2020 or, or some year to come, um, I pray that this conversation blesses you. I hope that you are encouraged and excited over learning more about the birth narrative of our baby savior, because it really is a tremendously amazing story. So make sure to check out Dr. Kostenberger's work in the show notes. Make sure to uh, check out his, his latest book, Signs of the Messiah, an introduction to John's gospel, which is coming out through Lexham Press. It, he's written so many books. If you bought one a week, uh, you wouldn't be done for a year. And, and all of them are good. And so I, I hope that you enjoy this episode. Um, and, and I'm excited to listen back to it. Uh, as every year for Christmas, as we think about what did Christmas actually look like. So let's get to it today. Our Christian thinker, Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. My next guest is research professor of New Testament and biblical theology and director of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also the founder of Biblical Foundations, an organization devoted to encouraging a return to the biblical foundations in the home, the church, and society. He is a leading evangelical scholar and prolific author. He has authored, edited, or translated close to 50 books, including God, Marriage, and Family, A Theology of John's Gospel, and most notably, for the lay Christian who's listening, he edited the study notes for the ESV Study Bible in the Gospel of John and and other John works. Uh, He also serves as editor currently of the Journal for the Evangelical Theological Society, uh, which is truly a hallmark of evangelical scholarship at the moment. So it is my honor, personal honor even, to have on the show today, Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Dr. Kostenberger, thank you so much for giving some of your time today, sir. You're welcome, Jeremy. Great to be with you. Yeah, well, thank you. So to to the listener, uh, we often I often get to have uh, pre-show conversations with guests and uh, let them know kind of where their work is, is, is in my life. And uh, and a big part of the reason why I had uh, even reached out to you, sir, to have you on the show was the, the impact that you've had on my life through your scholarship and so many other young biblical scholars. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not a biblical scholar necessarily. I diver, I, my master's in, is in intercultural studies, so I, I didn't. I was a little bit of a traitor to the biblical studies name, but, uh, but when I was an undergraduate, your work really impacted me. And so all of these books that you've written, like, like I said, more than 50 books, uh, I'd imagine that now you're beginning to see a little bit of your imprint perhaps on new Testament studies in the evangelical world. What's that been like to experience over the last 20 years or so? Well, you know, it all started out with, my converting to Christ uh, at the end of my time in college in my early twenties and, and just really falling in love with God's word. And uh, I'd never read the Bible till I was about 23 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just felt really thirsty and, and hungry for, you know, for spiritual uh, nourishment. And so I, I started voraciously, you know, reading the Bible and just uh, taking it all in and, uh, 
and then just felt that real um, desire to study it in depth and then also to share with others, you know, what I've discovered and in God's word. And so uh, in the end, uh, the Lord just gave opportunities and opened doors to, to write and to, to teach. And, and so it's been a joy just to, to, to be on this journey of discovery and to have others join me in it. Yeah. Well, a journey of discovery is certainly an appropriate way to describe it. And even reading your work, um, your work is very interesting. So for somebody listening who might think that they, that, you know, because they're not a Bible scholar or even a student, that they are, you know, that work like yours is inaccessible. It seems like you've always made an attempt, in my opinion, to make at least a large portion of your work accessible to either the lay Christian reader or even just somebody who might, um, you know, want to do a little bit of the work. Cause like the book that I referenced to you personally, the mm-hmm. encountering yeah. series from Baker exegetical, which you wrote about the gospel of John. I think anybody could pick that up and learn double or triple their knowledge on the gospel of John. So has that been sort of a conviction for you to make your work accessible to more Christians than what typical scholarship is? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I've had some really good mentors. Uh, I studied with uh, D.A. Carson mm-hmm. and then Wayne Grudem and, and yeah. others at Trinity. They're pretty, and, they're pretty good. And, <laughs> they they model you know that approach because they really have a heart to equip people uh, in their thinking and their in their ministry to others and, and and to make the Bible you know accessible and understandable yeah. and so I kind of fo- tried to follow in their footsteps yeah. you know yeah. uh, as best yeah. as I could. Yeah. Well, and few people have the range that you do, in my opinion, doing the lay work or, you know, the work that's a little bit more accessible, but then also I'm a member of ETS um, and I get the journal and uh, Mm -hmm. some of the work in there is of the highest level. And so I'd imagine it can be difficult for you even sometimes to go from writing a book that's for the the freshman Bible student to, uh, you know, editing or, you know, at least interacting with some of the highest biblical scholarship in the world today. It's true. I think, you know, uh, more recently, what really motivated me in my writing is my, my own children. Mm. They are uh, anywhere from high school to college to grad school and, and to married. Uh, and, uh, you know, just uh, questions they ask me. And so recent book, uh, The Jesus of the Gospels, I, mm. I read, you know, literally, you know, with them in mind, thinking, you know, I want to make sure that they understand that they can use it. Uh, in maybe leading Bible studies with some of their peers. And so uh, I've developed a little bit more of a, you might even say apologetic kind of Mm. thrust to some of my writing, because I know people have questions about the faith. There's, there's, uh, you know, um, sometimes people argue there's contradictions in scripture. And so you try to to resolve those as best as you can. And and, then to equip people to, to defend their faith, because as you know, especially in college, uh, sometimes that's when, when, when challenges come. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and in my opinion, you know, sometimes, like you said, apologetics are, are necessary, but um, I think sometimes what gets left out is, is scholarship is just somebody who seriously interacts with the text and the things of the faith in a way that is hard to argue with. And so, um, so I, yeah, I've always appreciated about uh, that about you and so many other scholars in the New Testament world and the Old Testament as well. And today, uh, you and I specifically are, are going to talk about Christmas. And you wrote a book um, just just a few years ago, really, The First Days of Jesus. And, um, 
and I, I read it. It was tremendous. And, and I loved the idea when we, you and I first started talking of, of talking about well, what, what was the first Christmas really like, or what were the first days of Jesus really like? And in the book, in discussing that sentiment, you right away said, if, if Jesus uh, were to be completely removed from the question, Americans specifically could continue to celebrate Christmas with hardly an interruption. And I, I think that that's, of course, timely and yeah. very accurate, unfortunately. Why, why do you think it is that Christians, and, and it's not just Christians, of course, because we live in a society that's heavily Christianized, but, um, but why, why is it that you think that Christians have become comfortable with a Christless Christmas? Yeah, I think, you know, it's so much in life, you know, corporate America has done a great job in, in commercializing yeah. Yeah. Christmas and then and, and it's, it's a big deal, you know, even for churches, it's a big deal for, you know, year end giving to, to, to make the budget, you know, for, yeah. the, for yeah. the year. And and, and, and and so it's it's just, you know, a piece of American culture um, and uh, and yet, like you said, uh, as we say in the book, if Jesus were removed, uh, mm -hmm. somehow uh, Chris, Christmas would continue unabated and, and, and nobody would probably even notice or very few would. I, you know, my wife and I uh, just uh, got away uh, last week for our, uh, anniversary and uh, did a, a low key kind of a local uh, a trip. And uh, so we went to Asheville and went to a, uh, a Christmas store there. Mm -hmm. Just, uh, you know, just a, extensive um store you know two levels and everything and and uh, i looked around and you know there's there's virtually nothing i found there that yeah. that really had yeah. anything to do with as you mentioned the biblical historical you know christmas the the story of of jesus birth and, mm -hmm. and it it reminded me all over again uh just the difference between christmas traditions that we yeah. all have uh, and and the, the the nativity story, the way you know the birth narratives are are told in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it is amazing. I think I know exactly what story you're talking about. I don't live very far from Asheville at all, and <laughs> yeah, and they, yeah, that, that's probably one of the best examples of a heavily heavily commercialized Christmas. But you know, so is Walmart, and so is unfortunately m most American homes right now. Um, yeah. And of course, we know that you know it's good that people are spending a season of joy. But, you know, another thing that you wrote in the book that stuck out to me that perhaps maybe, maybe even this conversation you and I are getting to have today will, will burden Christians for is, is uh, this sentiment where you said the lives of the rich, powerful, famous, or influential are memorialized for future generations in biographies or autobiographies while the poor often die in anonymity and you were talking about the nature of this birth narrative you were talking about the nature yeah. of the events surrounding the birth of jesus and it seems to me one thing that gets lost a lot in western christianity at least is mm -hmm. the disenfranchised nature of jesus the the disenfranchised nature of the most important figures in the gospel and do you think ultimately that part of the identity of christmas that we've lost is this is an event where over and over again, whether it be the response from King Herod, the response, um, you know, from, you know, we'll talk about the inn and the things like that, but you know, sure. it, it's a disenfranchised holiday, so to speak. Um, do you think that that's maybe part of the fabric or identity that we've lost hold of? Um, I agree. Uh, you know, and that's why it's so important for us to, to, to read the, uh, the birth narratives, uh, especially the one in Luke, uh, because Luke has this, 
this uh, burning desire to point out that uh, Jesus uh, uh, was born in very humble circumstances. And, mm -hmm. and again, like you said, we'll explore that maybe in more depth later in, in the conversation. But the idea that there were, you know, the only witnesses were shepherds, you know, yeah. in, the, in the field. And, and yeah, the, the note of rejection even that, mm -hmm. that you see very early on already, you know, so Jesus was not part of the mainstream or even the establishment. Uh, he was an outsider, you know, and he was, he was a king, but, but, but he was born, you know, and he was the royal Messiah, but he was, he was born in, uh, you know, very un, inconspicuous circumstances. And in many ways was just a very ordinary baby who yeah. Mary just, you know, kept warm with, with some, some, you know, swaddling cloths and so forth. So mm. uh, you're right. I mean, uh, talking about the, the journey of discovery, right? If, if, if you're reading the biblical account of Christmas, uh, you know, the, the, the biblical writers tell a very different story from, from, from the, the Christmas that, that, that you find in our culture. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in the book, uh, you do a tremendous job of kind of walking people through that. And, and, you know, you start in Matthew and then move to Luke and then there towards the end, even talk about John, which I'm very excited to talk to you about um, some, mm -hmm. uh, some John stuff today, but, but really, like you said, the heart of the matter is Matthew and, and Luke. And one of the first things when talking about Mary and Joseph, of course, who are the, at least until mm -hmm. the birth of Jesus, the integral uh, people in this story, um, you bring out a point that I don't think I've ever really thought of, that I don't think most Christians have ever really attached to. And it's when you say in talking about the virgin birth, and of mm -hmm. course, that's a topic that many Christians are very familiar with and don't really need yeah. to be convinced of necessarily. Um, but you, you bring out a theme, a thematic element to the virgin birth that I thought was tremendous because you said, we see that barrenness and other obstacles constantly threatened the progression of the, the messianic seed, we'll say, and that God often intervenes supernaturally to ensure its survival. And of course you're, you're, you're um, reminding the reader of, uh, you know, the, the, the promise to Abraham and so often in the old Testament where it seemed as if the, the messianic line would not continue, but yet it did. And so it yes. seems like reading that really there's a greater story to Christmas that we never share, which is that before Mary ever conceived, it was already unlikely that it would have ever gotten to that point because of what happened in the old Testament without God's intervention. And even as you draw out, and for the listener who's never realized this, the four women in Jesus's genealogy being a great example of this unlikely nature of the messianic line. So do you see Christmas, too often Christians treat Christmas and the birth narrative as the beginning of the story. Um, do you really see Christmas and the narrative as more of a crescendo in a sense of God's directing humanity? He's been directing them to this point in time for quite a while. How, how do you see that thematic element when you include this unlikely nature from the Old Testament? Yeah, I think you're raising some great questions, uh, both the specific, uh, you know, mentioned in Matthew of, of the fulfillment of, of Isaiah's prophecy that the virgin will be with child, uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 7, verse 14, uh, but also the fact that in Matthew, the 
the birth narrative and the account of the virgin birth is is it comes right on the heels of, of that genealogy at the beginning that probably most people skip, but it's there for a reason because, like you said, you know, uh, Matthew tries to show that the story doesn't begin, you know, in a Bethlehem manger. And of course, John, in his own way, as we'll see later, makes right. kind of that same point as well. Uh, but so, yeah, in the book, we the, the first chapter is basically just devoted to, to setting setting the stage or kind of giving the context, you know, of the, of, of the birth of Jesus. And so we, we kind of backtrack and, and, and show that really it all started in about, you know, 2000 BC, we got choosing a family, uh, choosing Abraham. And then about, you know, five, 600 years later, around 1400, God makes a nation, uh, the nation of Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the Exodus, and then in in about 1000 BC, so there's about uh, you know half millennium intervals. Uh, mm-hmm. God chooses a king. He chooses uh, David, uh, and now it gets a little closer to home already. And He promises him to have a lasting dynasty. And even though God's people are taken to exile, uh, that messianic hope uh, continues. And uh, and even though then uh, the prophetic voice ceases, Malachi, right? There's several hundred mm-hmm. years where um, the voice of God is, is, is not heard. Uh, the, uh, the waiting for the Messiah continues. And you see that uh, all the Gospels really open with this uh, air that's rife with Messianic expectation and mm-hmm. speculation. And so then... Um, in that context come some unusual events, such as a virgin giving birth to a child or right. angelic visitations, the angel Gabriel showing up repeatedly, uh, you know, people like uh, uh, John the Baptist's father, you know, Zechariah having, having dreams, you know, mm-hmm. while performing his priestly service and, and so forth. And so part of it, there's something stirring, and the biblical writers are saying something really momentous is about to happen. Mm-hmm. So yeah. this is kind of like the, the, the world that you, the biblical world that you, that you enter when, when the Matthew and Luke uh, tell the story of, of the yeah. birth of Jesus. It, it is, it is really when you begin to look at it through that lens, as opposed to, you know, everything has stopped and, you know, to, you know, even many Christians don't even realize just how uh, volatile the intertestamental period was and the frame of mind that a first century uh, Jew in Israel would have just been the only hope they would have had was the Messiah at this point. And yeah. uh, so when you begin to look at it through that lens, Christmas almost becomes even sweeter because when you sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, you really transport yourself back to this pre-Messianic period where you think that God, be- God coming and being with us is really the only hope that we have because it was, I mean, it was, it was just a horrible time. What, what do you think the, the expectation was we in, in, in sermons, uh, Bible studies, we hear all the time of what the Jews really did expect. And we hear that they expected the Messiah to be a a military leader, a political leader. Uh, What, what do you think the average expectation of the Messiah was from a Jew in the first century Israel? Yeah, I think uh, scholars have started uh, to use the word Judaism in the plural, and they now speak of Judaisms, realizing that, you know, there's not just yeah, one. Right. Of course, we see the different sects or parties in the New Testament, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and so forth. And and now that we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, right, the Qumran community, we know that they expected actually not one, but two messiahs. So 
uh, a good place in the Bible uh, that I would recommend for our listeners to go to if they're interested in that question is, is the uh, John chapter 7, mm-hmm. where John showcases just a number of, of diverse uh, Messianic expectations, some of them actually contradictory, mm-hmm. <laughs> where some are saying, well, wait a minute, uh, Jesus is from Nazareth. Doesn't it say that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem? Of course, ironically, they didn't realize that Jesus was right. born in yeah. Bethlehem. Right? Or, or others are saying, wait a minute, we know where Jesus is from, but the Messiah, it, it, doesn't it say somewhere that nobody will know where the Messiah is from? Mm-hmm. Well, what is it? Is he born in Bethlehem? You know, is he of this mysterious, you know, origin? All of a sudden he shows up, nobody knows where he came from, and it became a stumbling block for some Jewish people mm-hmm. in Jesus because they looked at him and say hey we know who he is we know his family we know you know his yeah. father's the carpenter and so forth mm-hmm. and so i think john has has some good natured fun right with, mm-hmm. with, with with people just can't really make up their mind you know who yeah. the messiah was going to be yeah uh, and uh interestingly to me uh, very few thought of isaiah 53 you know which you might mm-hmm. think that that would have been a huge passage, the idea of the, the suffering servant. But for whatever reason, uh, that didn't seem to be, it should have been, but I don't think it was historically who people thought the Messiah was going to be instead. As you mentioned, they thought of him more as his triumphant, you know, nationalistic uh, leader, kind of like the, the, there was the Maccabean period right. about 150 years earlier. Uh, leaders, uh, Jewish leaders who liberated for a season, for about a century, uh, the Jews from, you know, Roman uh, dominion. Uh, But uh, of course, we see in the Gospels that Jesus steadfastly rejects uh, being that kind of uh, person and instead uh, almost like keeps it a secret, right? I mean, who he truly is, because he knows uh, people just wouldn't have the capacity to really understand. Well, and it's amazing to think that the Messiah was the son of a carpenter. And, uh, it, and it really even thinks, you know, as we reflect on Mary and Joseph and their parts in this, this story, and we think about Joseph especially, you know, we can't even begin to imagine what his life must have been like really throughout that whole period, especially in this, in this birth narrative. And something I can remember in, on the topic of Joseph, something I can remember asking when I was just becoming familiar with the Bible was that, that if it was essential for Jesus's role as Messiah, that he be from the line of David. And if his lineage in that line came from Joseph, but Joseph wasn't actually his father, uh, you know, kind of what do we do with this? And I remember as, as a beginning Bible student, kind of pestering my professors and saying, this is a problem. You know, this is, and of course, as a beginning Bible student, you think you're the first person who's ever really thought of this. And, uh, you know, so in the book, you suggest that, that Joseph's obedience to the angelic calling was absolutely essential because it allowed Jesus to be brought up in that Davidic lineage. And so essentially we have some adoption, adoption themes here and, 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 in, 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 in adoption, as you know, I mean, probably a thousand times better than I do, uh, which a, a adoption was an integral part of lineage in the ancient world. So, so kind of paint a picture for somebody who's, who's listening and they're not extremely familiar, what the, mm-hmm. the, the, the adoption essentially mm-hmm. of Jesus by Joseph really meant in this Christmas narrative. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're exactly right. Uh, and, uh, you know, Luke gives us more biological uh, genealogy and, and Matthew follows more the, the legal uh, uh, 
line, uh, as you mentioned. And so mm -hmm. clearly for, for Jesus to be part of, of, of the family, Joseph would have had to legally adopt him into the family uh, because, as you mentioned, he was not his biological father. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I've just the last few months uh, spent a little time in my own personal um, genealogy, my family tree. Mm -hmm. I uh, got myself, uh, you know, some software and then just um, added some names. And and so you, you quickly realize things are not quite as simple. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. sometimes you may have you may have divorce. Sometimes you may have, uh, you know, the husband dying and then remarriage. And and, uh, you know, in some cases, maybe it's not even known who the true father is. Uh, and, and so uh, before, you know, people are too quick to, to say, well, look, there's a there's a slight variation in the way Matthew and Luke tell the genealogy. If you've ever done, say, your own genealogy, you realize that there's a certain amount of complexity, and sometimes you have a choice to make, and, and there's more than one legitimate way to, to, you know, to trace the line, especially mm -hmm. when you go by, by the legal uh, you know, adopted line. And, and as you mentioned, it's obviously essential that Jesus comes from the Davidic line. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Joseph adopting him uh, ensures that that's in fact the case. Yeah. And of course, it, it, as is so often the case in any biblical studies, it, it, you know, to a listener might be kind of imagining modern day adoption where you go before a judge and, and all of these things. I mean, is, it was essentially Joseph's willingness to just raise this child as his own, which, which yeah. provided that adoption, um, and what an amazing thought too, that Joseph was faced with the choice. And, and we don't really know to what level of understanding he was operating with throughout Jesus's life. And, and of course it's great mystery, really what happens to Joseph there towards the end of Jesus's life. But, but uh, how, how, how do you imagine, I mean, the social stigma surrounding uh, the beginning of Jesus's life and specifically for Mary and Joseph paint a picture for a listener, what kind of stigma would have surrounded Mary and Joseph as Joseph chose to be obedient to God's calling on his life to raise this child as his own? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I just recently heard a sermon where there was a lot of emphasis on on just how Mary's and Joseph's lives were kind of turned upside down. And yeah. that's not yeah. the life they they expected to live. And, 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 that's true. I would also say that, you know, in, in say, Matthew's uh, birth narrative that that's basically told from, from Joseph's perspective, mm -hmm. um, there's a couple of things that are going on. One is that Joseph is the recipient of, of, of dreams and, and, and angelic, uh, you know, visitations. And so there's the idea that that uh, he's got some help, some some nudging is going on, some extra explanation, which I'm sure was much needed. And so it was not just him kind of, you know, in his mind, you know, kind of thinking that through, but, but there's some divine revelation uh, involved as well. Um, and, and, and then it also talks about that he was a righteous man. And mm -hmm. so he, uh, he wanted to do the right thing um, and, and yet be very discreet about it uh, out of, you know, consideration from Mary. It was, it was probably of course, even more, uh, you know, potentially, um, you know, compromising for her to find herself in that position. And you mentioned earlier, uh, the uh, genealogy in Matthew and the, the four other women. Mm -hmm. And, you know, scholars, that's one thing that scholars really haven't totally figured out. And I've, I've, I've surveyed that. And there's all kinds of theories why those four women, you know, uh, people like uh, 
as diverse as, as Bathsheba and uh, Tamar and, mm-hmm. and, and, and Ruth um, and, and then Mary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty uh, confident that part of what Matthew's doing here is he shows that even earlier in Jesus' line in his family tree, there was sometimes scandal involved or at least the appearance of scandal. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in Bathsheba's case, there was a real scandal, right? Yeah. But in Ruth's case, there was maybe the appearance of scandal. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that nothing happened there that night on the threshing floor when, when Boaz, you know, just uh, and, and her stayed there overnight. Mm-hmm. But some people in the village probably rumored that something maybe did happen. And so right. I think right. Matthew's point there is that, well, just because there's the appearance of scandal at the virgin birth, doesn't mean that anything improper actually happened. To the contrary, uh, it was really the Holy Spirit who yeah. was uh, Jesus, you know, the, the, the agent of, of the conception of Jesus right. in Mary's womb. Right. Yeah. Mary and Joseph are, are really uh, tremendously interesting people. And I think that oftentimes they really are just two figurines in a, in a nativity set. And, and we really reflect on who they were and what their lives must have been like in this, you know, as Mary sings in the Magnificat, it's this great honor, but also at the same time, their life, as you said, was, was certainly turned upside down. Um, and it's, it's truly a, an amazing thing to, to reflect on. And in, in this story, though, one of the most amazing things to me about the, Christian, the Christmas narrative that doesn't really get talked about enough is, is there's, a, there's so many peripheral characters. There's so many people on, on, the, on the outside looking in who really are instrumental. And the two that stand out to me the most uh, is Simeon and Anna. And in the narrative, we know that uh, after the, the correct amount of days, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to the temple and, you know, there's a, a number of things that they, that they would have been doing there. But while they were there, they come across these two people, Simeon and Anna. And Simeon especially, Anna doesn't actually have any uh, dialogue necessarily. I mean, we, she likely in, actu- in, in actuality said something, but she doesn't get attributed with words in the narrative. But Simeon does. And Simeon is this extremely interesting person who had been told by God that he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah. And so he's doing his, his work in the temple and, and in walks Mary and Joseph with this baby. And we don't know what the nature of that interaction was like, how he knew other than just God telling him, but it says that he took him up in his arms and then, and then prophesied. And, and then Anna similarly has a, has a interaction with Joseph and, and Mary too, that foretells sort of what's going to happen. And in the book, you call Simeon and Anna watchmen. Uh, mm-hmm. And you describe their role as this, this almost outside looking in and, 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 and in a, almost like in a verification role of who, this yeah. is who Jesus is and this is what he's going to do. So, so why do you describe Simeon and Anna Watchmen and, 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 and what exactly was their function yeah. in, in being included by Luke in this story? Yeah, they, they serve, I think, you know, you might say as representative characters and, and, uh, in the ancient world, in ancient Judaism, the whole idea of witnesses to an event was, was mm-hmm. very, very important. It still is today, right, in our legal system, uh, yeah. jury trials and so on. Uh, but so Luke uh, has this dual witness theme, which is really fascinating. And if our listeners, if they want to study that, both yeah. in, in Luke yeah. Gospel and in the book of Acts, you know, of course, the signature verse of Acts is, you shall be my witnesses, uh, you know, to the ends of the earth. 
And so you see whether it's uh, Simeon and Anna or uh, later the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, you know, mm. or, uh, you know, the, the Lydia and the Philippian jailer, you know, Luke seems to, 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 to make a point to show that there's uh, multiple witnesses, you know, at least two in keeping with the requirement for there to be at least two mm-hmm. or three witnesses in Deuteronomy. Um, and often they are a man and a woman, wow. like you have in this case. And so he, he covers, right, all of humanity that way. And so in our case, uh, he shows that that both of them uh, were representing Judaism as, as, as waiting in keeping with prophecy uh, for the Messiah. And so they're those transitional figures, right? Moving us from the Old Testament period, which was this period of prophetic prediction and, and messianic expectation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so transitioning us from that to the New Testament period, if you will, the actual birth of the Messiah and then Jesus' ministry and his you know, death and, and, uh, and resurrection and so forth. Yeah, I'm... I'm preaching this Sunday in my church and, and I can't get away from Simeon. It seems to me like, can you, I mean, what must it have been like to be Simeon, yeah. you know, being told, okay, you won't die until you see the Messiah. And somehow God whispers in his ears, Hey, that baby over there and to take salvation up in his arms. Um, I mean, have you, in your studies, I know that scholarship for a, for a Christian is not just a theoretical exercise. I mean, are you ever impressed upon, in your heart and in your mind by these people and just what must they have been feeling to be Simeon in that moment? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, uh, again, I just recently reread that story and I was struck by the fact that Anna was a widow, right? Mm-hmm. She was married, I think for just a fairly short time yeah. and then her husband died. And then she lived as a widow for just like, a long, long time, like 50, 60 years, uh, just waiting for the Messiah. And I think it's, it's, it's a way to appreciate, right? Mm-hmm. The, the intensity of, of expectation. And, you know, we try to recreate that a little bit in our culture, you know, through Advent, uh, you know, to, to recreate this, yeah. this sense of expectation, but really it, it pales by comparison. Yeah. You can't you match about. it centuries, right? We're talking about Abraham 2100 BC, you know, so we're talking about 2,000 uh, years uh, of, of, uh, of build-up, and that shows just, you know, the Bible says uh, with God, you know, a thousand years is like one day, right? and so for God, really only two days passed since Abraham, right? But mm-hmm. for humanity, uh, 2,000 years is a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And now the moment has come when those mm. promises are about to be fulfilled. So yeah. It's, it's, it's truly an amazing thing. And when we look at the New Testament, especially, and of course, even more so the Old Testament as a record of covenants with Israel and with, with even individuals, you begin to see in Simeon and Anna this, this fulfillment of covenant. This, hey, I'm going to do what I said. I'm going to keep my promises. And I think where this shows up maybe the most interesting and, and unfortunately in, in, in the way that we typically observe Christmas, um, the, the Magi or the wise men are, are very much just kind of an afterthought. And we joke around about that. They weren't actually at the nativity, which of course yeah. we know that they weren't, but really for the non-Jew 
who, who, which of course is at this point, the overwhelming majority of Christians in the world, it's the appearance of the wise men that perhaps should mean the most to us, because this is when Gentiles come on the scene. And this is when maybe even we begin to see a true fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, that all of the world would be blessed by your, your family and not just the nation of Israel. And these, these magi, these wise men show up and in the book, you make the case that is, is often made by many New Testament scholars that they, they weren't actually there. It would have been maybe around two years or so after the events of, of the nativity. Um, these men were, were likely astrologers because they were, I mean, not many people look up at the sky and see a star and, and know where to go and, and all of these things. And so there's some debate as to who exactly were they? We know that they're, they weren't likely actually kings of Orient, like the song says. Uh, we know that they, they, there probably wasn't actually just three. There may, have, there may have been, but it never actually says that. So what we know is that they were likely astrologers and they were maybe from Babylon, the Arabian Peninsula, or Persia, which, which is most closely identified with Iran today. So, so, so what role would – it's kind of a strange thing, in all honesty – uh, to think that these guys show up on these men are astrologers and they're from a part of the world that that uh, is not often thought of in the in in the New Testament. So what what role do you think they play in that in this narrative of the nativity and 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 then of course the the birth narrative of Jesus? Yeah, it's a great question, and you know I think uh, there's a lot of speculation as you mentioned and things that we don't really know for sure. And the mm-hmm. traditions that have, you know, uh, clung to, to, to those, those, the, the mistake, right. Of, of yeah. those figures. But, but I think when you look at, so why did Matthew, you know, record it? It's, it's not even in Luke, right. Or anywhere else. It's just in, mm-hmm. in Matthew chapter two. Uh, and I think what he's trying to show is that, that Jesus birth had worldwide impact. You know, and, and what we know is those people, regardless if they come from modern day Iraq or Iran or, mm-hmm. or you know, Arabia, they came from very far away. And so somehow uh, they were attracted to the birth of this of this king um, uh, from a biblical literacy standpoint, something that not everybody picks up on. But to me, I think it's utterly compelling is is parallels with the Queen of Sheba in the Old Testament. Right. And so I certainly invite our listeners, if they're interested, just to see for themselves. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 10, or there's a parallel in 2 Chronicles 9, um, you see uh, the Queen of Sheba coming from far away, bringing gifts, very similar to the gifts of those uh, wise men, to, of all people, the son of David. Yeah. Solomon, mm. you know, I mean, so I can't help but think that Matthew expected the readers to draw a certain connection there, that now there's people coming from far away bringing gifts to the son of David. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, it, of course, foreshadows uh, Matthew's story and his gospel ends with a great commission, mm-hmm. uh, with, with a command to uh, his followers to go and, and make disciples of all nations. Mm-hmm. And so here you see kind of the first stirring, right, of people from the nations coming mm-hmm. to pay homage to the son of David. Yeah. Uh, and so you see this, what some scholars call intertextuality, mm-hmm. where Matthew is alluding and echoing, right, at an earlier text in the biblical story, uh, showing there's a certain escalation, you know, mm-hmm. because as we know, Solomon was... was 
was in many ways very flawed. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. here the, the the perfect, the eternal son of David right. uh, is 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 making his appearance, and the world no, uh, you know takes notice. Yeah. And worship. It's it's so fascinating to me the more you look at it because it it doesn't meet any of our expectations of what of how this story should have gone, and when you you know, include the narrative of what happens with Herod and, and then of course the, the, the miserably uh, sad, uh, you know, massacre of all the children and Herod's attempt to, to get rid of this rival King. But as a, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in comparative religion. That's sort of my field academically. And so I think it's so interesting that these men in all likelihood, you know, because we know that they were from a part of the world where uh, the idea of being a Magi uh, as they're often called pegs them somewhere maybe in Persia, but we don't know exactly where they are, but they would not have cleanly fit into um, an Israeli Judaism by any means. And in, in, like you said, this is really the fulfillment to the Gentile world. And so to me, it's, it's, it's so amazing too, because this is one of the first instances where we begin to see people who don't cleanly fit into the salvific narrative of Israel beginning to be involved in, in, in like you said, paying homage to their new King. And, and yeah. so, so it, it really is, it really is amazing to me. And like you said, there's intertextuality, there's, there's other parts of the Bible that, that point to this. And it's, um, it's, it's so, so interesting, but then it leads us to, as I said, one of the more dismal parts of this story where Herod gets involved, the, the wise men clue him into it. We know that he, uh, massacred uh, children in an attempt to to get rid of of Jesus, um, and then because of a vision, Joseph and Mary flee with Jesus and into Egypt. And we see, as you say, another you know we would call it typology, I guess, because um, it's not it's pointing towards perhaps the Exodus by the the Israelites in the wilderness with Moses maybe even there was some foreshadowing there of the life of Jesus. So is there symbolism here in the Egyptian exile, in your opinion, or do you believe it just serves simply to identify Jesus with the wandering Israelites? Yeah, I think again, you know, uh, the study of the use of the Old Testament and New is a fascinating enterprise. And, you know, you see various ways in which uh, people have strong connections between mm -hmm. the coming of Jesus and, and what you see in the Old Testament, and whether it's, it's direct prediction, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, mm -hmm. uh, that's easily verifiable or falsifiable, right? Mm -hmm. Was Jesus, right. where was he born, you know? Uh, but then there's other, maybe slightly more subtle uh, clues, and, and I think this would be one case where uh, Jesus's uh, early life is set into the context of the Exodus. Uh, uh, the, the quote there is from, from Hosea chapter 11, out of Egypt, I called my son. And of course, literally Israel is sometimes called God's son in the Old Testament. Right. So uh, right. the immediate point of reference uh, clearly is to Israel. God uh, delivered Israel out of uh, their uh, you know bondage in Egypt. But then Matthew thinks that that's not all that in terms of the potential for for future meaning it's not exhausted there's also a sense in which when jesus's parents took him down to egypt just to to protect him from from herod uh, and then brought him back up that that in a sense god that the pattern repeats itself if you will in the mm -hmm. life of jesus and so he's he's almost like living out uh, israel's story all over again in his own life. And so, yeah, 
the, the, the message is there's some fascinating parallels between Jesus and Moses yeah. in the Bible, yeah. even at his birth. You know, when you look at, at how Moses' life was threatened and miraculously preserved. And then prophets like Isaiah talk about a new exodus that, that, that uh, there would be a voice in the wilderness saying, mm-hmm. you know, make straight the path of the Lord. Um, mm. And then the Messiah would come. And so you see that uh, Matthew here uh, tells his readers to expect that Jesus would lead a new sort of spiritual exodus. He would deliver us not just from, you know, uh, harsh labor, but, but, but literally from, from, from uh, you know, from our bondage to sin mm-hmm. and destruction and uh, so, again, you see yeah. that Jesus continues and fulfills uh, God's story with his people. Right. And, and if anything, you know, our conversation thus far has shown, shown listeners that the, the Christmas story isn't just the nativity. It, there's so much surrounding this, this one particular event that really not just adds to the story, but clearly defines it as this momentous event not just in in the history of israel but the history of humanity and in the in the destiny and eternity of of humanity but it is best de- demonstrated by the the nativity and so in the book uh you you sort of lay out a picture of you know what what this actually would have looked like and and of course we don't really know but bethlehem was not a large place it was a village and um you make mention of the things that that we often think are there, the animals, the innkeeper, um, so many other things that the, the text actually makes no mention of. And you say the things that were def- definitively there based off the text were the manger, the swaddling cloths and the inn, And then of course the, the shepherds later, yeah. but, but the theme that I want to address for, for, for hearers, cause I think most people sort of know, yeah. you know, what this would have looked like, but the theme that you suggest is that in this unlikely event of, of the, the son of God, the, the, the Messiah, the suffering servant, the lamb of God being laid in a manger, which might, you know, in some sense was a feeding trough, a, a watering trough foreshadows the rejection that his life is going to, to hold. Mm-hmm. And, and even maybe towards the cross. And so with that thematic element, can you speak to that? I mean, we, we, we have, I have a nativity scene in my living room. I'm sure you probably do. And, Perhaps when we look at that, we should walk our children through not just the the nice features of, you know, this wonderful story, which it certainly is, but also what it may be foreshadowed for the life of this Messiah. So what do you see when you look at the nativity? Yeah, I mean, it's so potent. The lesson that we learn that the gospel, you know, is not going to be welcomed by everyone with open arms. Uh, We know that. And we see that in, uh, you know, the, the story of Jesus' birth. Uh, it's fascinating to me that, uh, you know, uh, Luke and, and John, even though their birth narratives, if you will, are, are vastly different, both strike that note of rejection. Luke, you know, light mm-hmm. touch, just says there was no room in the end. Uh, and then later there's a prediction that the sword will pierce, you know, Mary's heart and so forth. Uh, John says he came into the world he made and mm-hmm. his own, you know, the, 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 the people he made did not receive him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just an incredible tragedy that 
the world did not recognize, you know, its creator. Mm. Um, and, and so the, in many ways, I think we've domesticated Jesus and we've, we've made him into this little baby in a Bethlehem manger who's non-threatening. And, and, you know, we've, we've reduced him to, to such a, uh, just tiny stature uh, that we can, you know, virtually ignore, and and we celebrate a Christmas of our own making, mm. rather than uh, pausing to listen to the biblical story and to, to understand this. Is Luke is at pains to show that uh, Jesus' coming was very countercultural, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, it defied contemporary expectations. Jesus did not turn out to be the Messiah people expected. His birth was not uh, what you would expect of a king, you know, in posh uh, circumstances. His, his mom just wraps a cloth around him to, to keep him warm. It's probably a little chilly there, uh, you know, in Bethlehem, especially if that was a, a cold December night. And and so it strikes you in many ways. He was just a very ordinary birth. Uh, there was no little fanfare, right? Only the, the shepherds who happened to be awake and were nearby in the fields even, you know, noticed. And then later, as you mentioned, the, the wise men come. And I think maybe one more thing to add about the wise men is that I think Matthew shows that, that they had room for Jesus while the Jewish authorities didn't yeah even though they really should have known better uh and so there's a little bit of a of a subtle rebuke there you know that the people for whom he really primarily came uh rejected him it was only people kind of more on the outside who mm-hmm. who were who were you know in some ways more open and isn't that true even today that right. you know sometimes yeah. the people who, who need him and who who know that they they, they, they need a savior who come to him for salvation and, and others are just, you know, comfortable and, and, and affluent and, and sense a little need for, for Messiah. I, I hope that, you know, we can all look at our nativity scenes it, it just even a little bit differently with that sentiment is that uh, this was, you know, whether it be the wise men and, and their acceptance of this King, and the rejection of, of the Jews of that same king or, you know, the, the unlikely nature of the story and the foreshadowing of the suffering of this, of this Messiah. But Dr. Kostenberg, I can't let you go. Um, uh, you know, as I mentioned, you, you impacted me through my own studies of John and um, you are, uh, in my opinion, at least um, the if leading, leading evangelical scholar um, it, on Johannine works. And so when we talk about Christmas, we don't really talk about John one very often, but I think we should. And so we could do two or three episodes just on the first 18 verses of the book of John. So, so don't feel as if you need to unroll your dissertation, but what do you make then of John and his account in John one of what might be even called the Christmas narrative? He's, it's, he's, it's almost like he's looking back at this preexistent God and John has a wider scope of understanding. Luke is this, this doctor, an analyst, and John is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so he just, you know, he wants to capture as much of Jesus as he possibly can. So, so especially after talking about Matthew and Luke for, for 45 minutes, how does John fit into all of this when we begin to think of the beginning of, this, of when Jesus came on the scene and John says, in the beginning was the word? 
So, so what kind of, how do you, how do you synchronize all this with John? Yeah. So to put it very plainly, I think uh, uh, John knew uh, some of the other gospels because they were written, mm -hmm. you know, a generation earlier. Uh, and he wrote his gospel, uh, not just to repeat what's already been said, but, but very pointedly to, to complement uh, mm -hmm. the other gospels and to yeah. add some, some depth of insight, so much so that, as you know, uh, church fathers have called John the spiritual gospel, not meaning that the other gospels are unspiritual, but that mm -hmm. John had unusual, you know, insight into uh, who Jesus was. And so uh, it would have been easy to overlook John completely and to, to write a book about Christmas just on the birth narratives in Matthew and Luke. And that's what's commonly done. But, but of course, like you said, in my love for John's gospel, I couldn't help but, right. but, but some sort of programmatic point, even in just including a chapter uh, on John to begin with. And I, I think the idea is, uh, just like Matthew and Luke try to show that Jesus' uh, birth even on the human level, you know, he had a long pedigree of, of ancestors in the flesh, if you will, leading up to, you know, he's the son of David, uh, his, him being born. I think John makes the point, you know, not to have some sort of one-upmanship, even though you could always look at it that way, but, but saying, hey, let's go even deeper. Yeah. You know, uh, on a spiritual level, Jesus existed eternally with God. So he was already the agent of creation as as mind-boggling as that is, it's hard for us to really wrap our brain around that, you know, um, that Jesus was there when the universe was created. So when he was born as a baby, that's when his, his human existence began, right? Yeah. Uh, he was not uh, the, the, the God-man prior mm -hmm. to the incarnation, uh, mm -hmm. but he already was God prior yeah. to the incarnation. And so I think... It's, it's just so vital, uh, and I think John makes uh, just a powerful contribution to understanding of the Christmas story by, you know, going back a lot farther than the immediate, uh, you know, events, uh, the virgin conception uh, of mm -hmm. Jesus by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, uh, so you can have a broader context of of just the momentous nature of God, right? Uh, yeah. Taking on flesh, the, the word became flesh, John 1, uh, 14, and dwelt among us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, I better be careful because uh, I could sit and ask you questions about the Gospel of John uh, all day. Um, so, but, but really, for the listener, I, I just hope that this conversation, like, like we've said a couple times, makes us look at our nativity scenes a little bit differently, makes us reflect this Sunday and in the next Sundays to come um, a little bit differently on this story and, and see that it's a story of, of, of an unlikely Messiah, of a disenfranchised uh, family that, that raised the Son of God and, and, and just littered with, with people, not just characters, but people who are a part of foreshadowing what is to come. And, and even as I so often say to, to my church is that Christmas really is the beginning of the Easter season is that we begin to think about how the story quote unquote ended when we begin to celebrate 
its beginning. And so Dr. Kostenberg, I'm so appreciative of you giving your time to me and the listeners. And, and I've already started reading The Last Days of Jesus, which is another book of yours. And so perhaps when Easter season rolls around, we can have a similar conversation on the topic of, of the, the Easter narrative as well. Absolutely. Well, uh, Merry Christmas uh, to yeah. you uh, and our listeners. Wonderful. Thank you, sir. Thank you.